0: Sarah.
1: Hi, Josh. How are you doing?
0: I'm good. How are you?
1: All right. All right.
0: Welcome back to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, episode six for those collecting and mounting and counting each of their podcasts (laughs) at home. On this week's episode, we will be doing a very exciting interview with our friend and hero, Jake Blumgart.
1: He's totally my hero.
0: Before that, we have our weekly news roundup, which starts with what, for us, as we record on Thursday,
1: <laughs> scandal
0: of the podcast, Yes, is a piece of breaking news that a second court, in this case the Third Circuit Court, has sided with the D.C. Circuit Court against the recess appointments that were made by President Obama to the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board. This heightens this so far largely under the radar for mainstream media coverage fight about whether we're going to have a National Labor Relations Board that does what, under the New Deal, the NLRB is supposed to do, enforce and interpret labor law. This is a fight that stretches, in some sense, to early in Obama's term when the NLRB lacked necessary appointees for months You can blame it on Republican obstruction fairly. You can blame it on a lack of aggressiveness from the president fairly. The president early in his second term made recess appointments that Republicans decried as unconstitutional. You have back and forth a a series of workarounds around workarounds on both sides. And now a situation where the courts in some cases at the circuit level have sided with Obama. In other cases, again, this is the second one where we've seen a circuit court side with the Republicans saying that these NLRB appointees were not legal. Going forward, labor unions are hoping that Obama will fill the NLRB with new appointees, particularly because whatever the disposition when it gets to the Supreme Court of these cases, we're going to have vacancies Increasing on the NLRB going forward, by the end of the summer, you'll have, unless those positions are filled, less than the required three nominees anyway on the NLRB. And so there's a real question about the ability of the NLRB to function, something that concerns many labor leaders, despite all of the criticisms that have been made of the extent to which the NLRB actually enforces the law or restricts companies from union busting or protects workers' right to organize. And this may also lead to a showdown around filibuster reform, an area where the Democrats had an opportunity and chose not to take it this year to do something about the real problem of obstruction in the Congress. So that non-optimistic news roundup (laughs) note leads us into the rest of the news roundup, which you could give the sub-headline, Look who's striking now. Sarah, who's striking now?
1: <laughs> well, they're not striking yet, but they they may well be soon. Um, at the San Francisco Giants Stadium in California, um, AT&T Field, um, I really love the corporate, you know, whose name is on it now, alphabet soup of these stadiums. Anyway, um, the concessions workers who are um, part of Unite Here Local 2, Um, They are, well, they voted to authorize a strike, which means that if the negotiations that are still going on, as we record, um, do not end satisfactorily, um, they may well go on strike. This is 800 workers who haven't had a raise since 2009. Um, Not that this is a surprising story by any means these days, right? We know about a lot of people who make... Low wages working in food service or um, retail or anything else that have not had a raise in many, many years. Um, so, as our friend uh, Travis Waldron reported at Think Progress, um, if things go badly, there may be a strike at the baseball stadium, a different kind of strike at the baseball stadium, rather.
0: Also authorizing a strike this week, janitors who work for contractors cleaning Target stores in the Twin Cities, who've gone on strike, as I reported for the nation before, for one day, have authorized a strike for June. This is a campaign like some of the other ones we've discussed on this podcast, where you have an alt labor group, a community organization called uh, CTUL in the Twin Cities which is, in this case, working closely with SEIU, the Service Employees International Union. In the Twin Cities, unlike the fast food campaign or the Walmart campaign, the organizers from CTUL have explicitly told me that they hope to win collective bargaining for these workers as members of SEIU. This is also a case where you see organizing at various places in the supply chain. These employees have pointed the finger at Target for some of the working conditions they experience, including entrances that are locked while workers are inside overnight. Target has said the responsibility ultimately doesn't lie with them because these are their contractors.
1: Of course. That's always how it goes, right?
0: Who else is striking now, Sarah?
1: So striking right now here in New York are legal services workers. Um, they are part of UAW Local 2320, and I met these um, legal service work- workers workers last year um, on May Day, and they were picketing in front of what, what is actually the New York Times building, but the Office for the Legal Aid, um, Com- legal Aid Services is in that building. Um, and they are, their contract expired last July. And so these are the people who provide legal services to the low-wage workers that we talk about a lot on this podcast, right? So they fight evictions, they um, help people get disability benefits or unemployment benefits. Um, they do all this and they're funded by the city. Um, but they have not, again, they're same old thing, right? They don't get a raise, um, they're fighting cuts to their health care and their benefits. And again, these are people who are not looking to get rich on what they do or they wouldn't be legal services um, attorneys or paralegals. But It just shows you, once again, everybody, right? Whether you're in a white-collar profession, in a blue-collar profession, when you're service workers, when you're janitors, when you're construction workers, when you're port truck drivers, you're still... All, everyone is getting squeezed right now. So the legal services workers are on strike. And um, they have a wonderful, actually, image up on their Facebook page. We'll put a link to it at dissentmagazine.org um, with the legal services workers holding up signs um, explaining why they're striking. So it's really worth looking at.
0: Also striking this week, we saw the fifth fast food strike in six weeks, this time in Milwaukee. So we've now seen workers on strike in both Michigan, where we saw historically, arguably, the birthplace of private sector unionism in the U.S., and then a devastating defeat with the passage of a so-called right-to-work law, and in Wisconsin, where we saw arguably the birthplace of public sector unionism in the United States, and then a devastating defeat with the so-called budget repair that was pushed through by Scott Walker. This, <laughs> this fifth strike involved organizers said roughly close to 200 workers. It involved both fast food and retail workers. It was followed on Thursday by the release of a report by the New York fast food campaign about wage theft. That's when your boss doesn't pay you wages that they're legally legally obligated to. That survey put out as part of that report by the Fast Food Forward campaign showed 84% of fast food workers in New York who'd been polled, saying they've experienced wage theft in the past year. Attorney General Eric Schneiderman's office confirmed to me for The Nation that the Attorney General's office in New York has issued subpoenas to at least one major fast food company. This could be an additional front in this comprehensive campaign by these groups that we see locally in each of these cities, Trying to find some way to force these companies to say yes when it's very clear that these fast food companies want to say no.
1: So it's really interesting, right? This has been going on now since November, since the first strike here in New York. And um, we've both been reporting on it for several months. And one of the, I mean, the first thing that I get asked whenever I talk about it, tweet about it, um, have any sort of conversation about it, is like, okay, but what's next? What sort of, we've seen one day strikes, successful one day strikes in now five cities, um, but what's next? And then the other question, because these are sort of the two things that are weighing on us as we watch this happen, is that there really seems to be sort of diminishing returns in the media at least, on the attention paid to these stories. That there really seemed like there was less interest this week in Wisconsin. Wisconsin, which, of course, like when Scott Walker's quote-unquote budget repair bill, his bill taking away collective bargaining from public sector workers, Wisconsin blew up. But also Wisconsin's social media and local media, independent media, really blew up and paid a lot of attention. And this week, there was not a whole lot of that. And The strikes were in Milwaukee, not in Madison, so maybe that's part of it. But still we're seeing people not seizing onto this the way they did the first couple of strikes, um, at least in terms of social media and in regular media presence. As reporters who cover this, we both have to sort of struggle to make these stories different each time. But how, how do you think that this is gonna end up playing out? I think
0: escalation is one of the real challenges for organizers as any in any campaign either you win and then there's the challenge of what do you do after you win or (laughs) if you make some kind of progress the question is how do you continue to escalate not only for public attention but because if you can't keep a company guessing then it's very hard to convince the company that fighting you is going to be more painful than conceding to you and having to sit across the table and bargain with you and so On the one hand, there's the question of how campaigns maintain public interest. Long term, though, if you're going to beat these companies, I think you're going to have to develop a base of worker leadership and an infrastructure within the campaign that is exponentially larger than what we've seen so far. And in some cases, actions that aren't that press friendly do that. One of the things we saw early on in the Walmart campaign was this series of skirmishes that took place in individual stores where it may have been... One worker bringing a few co-workers to confront one manager, getting, no, getting in the process no media, yeah. but developing leadership to be able to pull off something bigger. And so I think one question for the campaign is, to what extent are you seeing the development of worker leadership within these individual stores? To what extent are you laying the groundwork for exponential growth? But in terms of the goal of actually forcing these companies to the table, On the one hand, we're talking about a very, very difficult goal, but I think on the one hand it would take exponentially larger strikes and greater numbers of cities involved in the strikes, and on the other hand, a strategic comprehensive campaign. That's part of why I think this move on wage theft is interesting, because we have seen whether it's the Restaurant Opportunity Center and Alt Labor Group, or cases where unions have gone after local employers, that... When you do it in a smart way and in a way that doesn't depend on the law to save you, bringing legal scrutiny and bringing media scrutiny to cases where companies allegedly are breaking the law can be another weapon in this overall comprehensive campaign. These are the campaigns that unions turn to in large part because, as we mentioned in opening <laughs> the podcast, the NLRB is non functional. And even when it's functional, it's arguably non functional. Exactly. What do you make of it, Sarah?
1: we've seen an unwillingness on the part of the mainstream media to cover labor stories for quite a while, right? There used to be a labor section in every newspaper. Now there's a business section in every newspaper. And if you get one labor reporter, you're the New York Times. Um, And so you do actually have to do things differently to capture that media. But I wonder about the one-day strikes are certainly striking right as we've said before on the show that they're a great spectacle right you have these wonderful pictures from milwaukee this week of the workers taking the street and banner drops and all of this and it's it's great right and it makes for great media but the real story is going to be told like you said in between those big media moments and it's both a lot harder to get attention from people who are not labor nerds like us um when you're not doing something big and spectacular, but also it's really important to keep that up and to find different ways to tell your story that aren't just, we had a strike and here's how bad we have it. Because that story, people sort of know by now that you know, fast food jobs are, I don't think actually that anybody in this country is surprised to hear that fast food jobs are terrible jobs. The story that we have to figure out how to tell next is what happens next and and how a win for these workers is a win for everyone
0: the story of the strikes the story of the campaign and the story of the media's coverage or non-coverage of this and other stories are all stories that will continue to follow here on the belabored podcast brought to you by the wonderful dissent magazine we now turn to an interview with a wonderful dissent magazine contributor <laughs> our wonderful friend, exemplary human, and outstanding journalist Jake Blumgart. Jake is based in Philadelphia where he's a freelance journalist, researcher, and editor. He writes for Philadelphia publications like the Philadelphia City Paper and the Philadelphia Inquirer and for national publications like Slate, Salon, and The American Prospect. And we're delighted to have him here today to talk about a few of his recent stories. Welcome, Jake. Hi, guys. Glad to have you on Descent's Belabored podcast.
2: I'm very glad to be here.
0: So to start on a dark note, (laughs) as we often do, we are recording uh, following a series of headlines about industrial acti- accidents, most notably this historically awful tragedy in Bangladesh, where a building collapse killed over a thousand people as of the most recent count. You wrote in Salon an article at the end of March called Sweatshops Still Make Your Clothes. So, why do sweatshops still make our clothes? <laughs>
2: it basically comes down to the fact that it's just you know always going to be cheaper to make clothing abroad especially in nations that have uh corrupt or inattentive governments that won't be willing to enforce their la- labor laws or might just not have very good labor laws and you know therefore there simply aren't the incentives in place for companies to do a lot of their manufacturing here in the United States, and even those that do still um, have a lot of manufacturing in, in the United States, that's also, just to be clear, not necessarily a guarantee that your clothes are being made in an ethical fashion. Um, there can be sweatshops in the United States as well um, to really guarantee that your clothing was being made in an Ethical fashion, it would have to kind of be a union made in America type thing, not just made in America. And there just aren't very many of this anymore. I was just talking to a friend who's a teacher
0: who was discussing this Bangladesh tragedy with his civics class that he teaches of high schoolers. And one of the first things that came up there, as it does in a lot of conversations that I have with people, I think a lot of conversations people have with each other is people wonder, well, as a consumer, should I boycott? I recently talked to Kalpana Akhtar of the Bangladesh Center for Worker Solidarity who said, well, boycott is suicide. It is exactly what we don't want you to do. What What's your view of this, of the role of consumers individually in the U.S., and what could be the role of consumers collectively in the U.S.?
2: Well, so it's pretty tricky because... I mean, so the original idea for this article is basically an editor approaching me um, wanting to know or wanting me to write a piece on what consumers can do um, to basically be consumer activists. And the truth is that there's just... It's helpful as kind of an introduction to these issues to consider how to purchase ethical clothing or like any other kind of a product, but it's not in the end, there simply aren't enough places where you can make those choices to really um, change the market. And yeah. as far as boycotts go, it only really works if there are workers at a particular factory or who are working for a particular company that are trying to direct the boycott, because otherwise you get into this whole issue where maybe you know, the workers will be thrown out of work. If um, the boycott is a success um, and the company might just close down the factory and that, you know, would not be an optimal outcome to say the least for these workers, even if the jobs are like very dangerous and everything. Um, so as far as boycotts, you really do, have, um, in my opinion, you can't just charge off on your own without consulting the workers who you are trying to help and act in solidarity with. You actually have to act in solidarity with them and like do what they're um, wanting to do. Are there
0: examples where we've seen that get some results recently?
2: I mean, I would say there's kind of the principal place where I've seen kind of like mass consumer activism work is kind of on college campuses where you have... I mean, college campuses are just a highly unique environment on any number of levels. Uh, for one thing, you have a lot of people, a lot of young people with a fair amount of time on their hands who are living in a pretty small, enclosed environment. And on top of that, you know, colleges tend to want to avoid bad PR and, and you know, attract more students. And so you have, you basically have points of leverage that are lacking in the wider consumer markets. So, for instance, uh, in Indonesia, um, Adidas fired or cl- closed down a, a factory. A bunch of people um, were not given their appropriate wages when the factory was closed down. Um, and there has been this ongoing campaign in the United States to basically get um, colleges to, to um, exit their contracts with Adidas and... Um, in order to put pressure on the company to pay these workers. And, I mean, we've been seeing a lot of Temple University, Penn State, uh, a lot of universities, you know, have broken their contracts with Adidas because of this. Um, And a lot of uh, universities have, um, you know, signed up with the Workers' Rights Consortium, which is a kind of independent watchdog, um, you know, because a lot of companies kind of do this thing where they have their own inspections of their own factories, um, or their subcontractors factories that, you know, there's a clear conflict of interest there. Um, and so the workers rights consortium, you know, does independent investigations, um, as do several other uh, nonprofit organizations. And, um, so various schools have, Affiliated with the, with the workers rights consortium basically as a result of this, these coordinated campaigns by students and it's kind of this funny thing where you heard a lot about the student anti sweatshop movement in like the 90s and is simply not something that you hear that much about anymore but they're still out there they're still doing things and they're still winning fights which is more than can be said for a lot of anti sweatshop activism right now
1: whatever do you mean jake <laughs> um, So going from workers who have no rights at work overseas, it's way back when I was the labor editor at Alternet, you wrote a piece for me about workers getting fired for wearing the wrong color shirts over here. And maybe this is a thing that people still are not really aware of, that we really don't have any more rights than the workers over there do.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's definitely something that is continually surprising to me. Um, I mean, in part because... I've mostly worked freelance my entire life. I haven't really had a lot of like you know experience in. I mean, I've had like some experience in office jobs, some experience in restaurant jobs, but I like never really realized just the complete lack of workplace freedoms you have um, as an American. Basically, unless you have a union, which barely anybody does. Um, or your employer explicitly fires you for um, any certain number of protected categories, including uh, race and gender and age. You don't have a right to express your political beliefs at work. For instance, you can be fired for saying like what candidate you're supporting or for, you know, for having a certain bumper sticker on your car or like placard hanging on your um, office wall. It's, I mean, it's one of these things where it's just like this essential freedom that I think a lot of people just automatically assume we have. And we do in a lot of areas of our lives, but not in the workplace where most of us spend the uh, majority of our time that we're not asleep.
1: Yeah. Um, It's interesting because we just saw the reintroduction of ENDA, the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, which is specifically um, aimed at changing this law with regard to discrimination against people for um, sexual preference or gender identity. Although, as we were talking about before we started recording, um, some courts have ruled that gender identity is actually protected under the category of sex discrimination, but the thing that always strikes me about ENDA is that it's hugely popular. Three-fourths of the country thinks it should be law. It's just that more than half of them think it already is. Right. And this, this whole problem of how do, we, how do we explain to people that these rights don't exist and that we need to put them into law when it seems like certain, for instance, the, you know, the mainstream gay rights movement is putting most of its energy behind other issues
2: yeah i mean just a side note on and uh, i remember one of the first things i ever wrote when i was living in seattle was basically a blog post about how uh, like my editor at the time had um written something about how enda was up what was it there was a congressional hearing about Enda, and like it wasn't that exciting and it's like N- no it's not that exciting because it's not like it's actually going to go anywhere and it didn't. And it's, yeah, it's still, been, I mean, it's been, it's been before Congress for, like, uh, since, like, 1993 or something like that. Um, I mean, it's just been out there forever. Um, and it's also, yeah, it's also amazing, considering how popular that, uh, that idea is, that, you know, that, and, and that we're winning, or, you know, there are so many gay marriage victories, um, these days that like it's just not it's just not on anyone's radar it doesn't really seem like i mean i don't see a lot of like tpm you know articles about and or i don't know but, well i guess that's probably because it's not going anywhere
1: so you recently wrote a piece about um the one exception in the states the one state that does have some sort of law in the books that protects you um somewhat The workplace but can you explain about montana and um what it's why it's different and why it's still not really that great yeah
2: well so montana is this really bizarre exception where basically what happened was that over the course of the 1980s there were a series of court rulings where um the courts basically required um Employers to have uh, just and fair dealings with their employees, and this was um, interpreted over the course of these um, over the course of these court cases to basically mean that the employees could uh, sue if they were fired for no reason or for a bad, really bad reason, um, which is not the case, uh, you know, in most states. Um, and basically, so. I had been, you know, for years like seeing these studies and in books and whatnot that would talk about employment at will and then they'd have a little asterisk, um, you know, would say employment at will and, you know, the universal rule in the United States and then there'd be a little asterisk and it would say, except in Montana. And it's like, well, how'd that happen? So, um, yeah, I was uh, able to uh, write an article about how that happened. And I did a little research and it turned out, you know, I had assumed it would have been like pushed by organized labor or some kind of left-wing group or something like that, but I probably should have known that, you know, to get something like that passed, um, the fierce business opposition there would be to any such idea, you would have to have business on your side, and (laughs) sure enough, they had business on their side, and the whole thing was that the, basically, employers in Montana um, were really sick of getting sued all the time, and so... They basically came up with this just cause law, which um, basically made it um, so it puts a four year cap on on what you can win back, but minus either what you did earn in those four years or what you could have reasonably assumed to have earned. So, for instance, let's say you're getting paid ten dollars an hour. Um, and you get and you get the sack for some terrible reason and you can like go to court and try to get um your money your money back basically or for for those 4 years but um i forget what the exact montana minimum wage is it's a little higher than the national minimum wage but they can assume that you would have So even if you didn't have another job in this um in the time it's taking you to sue, the amount of money you end up getting back, you know, minus the 785 I think it is, Montana minimum wage, hourly minimum wage. I mean, it's just, that's not enough to really retain a, a lawyer, basically. So it makes it so that for low income workers, the Montana Just Cause law doesn't really have. Um, the comprehensive effect that you might hope. Now, I did talk to a number of labor lawyers in the state, and they did say that while it wasn't that great for low-income workers, it was still better than employment at will. Basically, employers are much more careful when they're um, firing people in Montana, which is better than nothing i guess and also if you do have a higher wage job and you get fired for some totally bullshit reason you um you know can get uh y- you know the amount you can win back is substantial enough that uh, you know, a lawyer will take your case um there's also a the whole thing that makes it very easy to go to arbitration but um anyway you should probably just read my article I don't <laughs> learn more. Uh, good
1: plug there jake good plug <laughs> um so in the end, right, we're talking about the Montana legislation, which isn't very good, the odds of getting anything through this Congress, um, and also the sort of historic weak point that the labor movement is at right now. What do you think is more likely? Some... Oh, the face he's making right now is amazing, our listeners. <laughs> um, but yeah, what what do you think is more likely? That people will win something through sort of shop floor organizing, or that... Um, will pass anything to change this in congress jake looks like he's gonna cry
2: (laughs) i mean i just i mean i'm gonna have to go with shop floor organizing just because the last you know five years have completely i mean i just have no faith in congress's ability to pass any kind of well not even just the past you know five years but (laughs) But, you know, all of congressional history, basically, at least since 1947.
0: So, Jake, full disclosure, I'm rooting for you to be the first belabored guest since Chicago Teachers Union President Karen Lewis to work a Star Trek reference into an answer. Uh... As as we close the interview, there's still time. No pressure. uh, There are a a couple other pieces you've written that we want to quickly ask you about. One is a, a really majestic and majestically depressing feature (laughs) for next city called has Atlantic City reached the end casino profits are falling sea levels are rising what's next for AC so what is it that's conspiring against Atlantic City In in particular you talk to union members and union leaders in Atlantic City What does it mean to be a member of the Union in Atlantic City, given the forces that are conspiring? And what is it that the Union could be doing to create some kind of better future for that city that has been really an island of good wages and good benefits comparatively in that region?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, it's super tricky. So basically, Atlantic City had uh, the monopoly on East Coast Casino gaming for a very long time and even when the Indian casinos started coming in in like Connecticut and whatnot, I mean really AC's principal market has always been the Philadelphia, metro region Jersey and New York Um, and so the Connecticut casinos uh, I guess like maybe took a little bit of their uh, of that edge away from them on the New York market but on the whole they pretty much reigned supreme um in 2006, Atlantic City had peak casino uh, win, I think, of like $5.2 billion, um, and that's when the Pennsylvania casino started coming in, and it's been a, almost a complete reverse in those six years since. 2012 saw um, um, Atlantic City's casino win fall a little, like, a little over $3 billion. so that's a $2 billion loss in six years. One of the things I found really impressive is you do have this very powerful um, casino workers union in Atlantic City um, and in any other industry that had seen their profits just nose diving like that, the workers would be taking it on the nose. But because so many of the um, um, workers in Atlantic City are unionized. They've only just negotiated their first concessionary contract, I think, last year, I believe. Which And in the end, I'm pretty sure that their health care is still all paid for. And, I mean, it's just very impressive what they've managed to hold on to considering how badly the industry in that town is doing. As to what the union could actually do to make Atlantic City itself a better place, it's, it's also kind of tricky because, honestly, a lot of the union members don't live in Atlantic City because it's predominantly very low income. There's a lot of urban blight. There's a lot of, of poor urban development decisions made in the 1960s, which just results in a lot of vacant land. A lot of people don't want to live there, and so they've, and so the work a lot of workers simply live in the suburbs. So the union's, I guess, you know, chief concern hadn't necessarily been, like, reviving Atlantic City as, like, a city in and of itself. um, So much as, like, you know, keeping the industry um, steaming along.
1: I mentioned previously on Belabored um, the strike at the Fat Salmon Sushi Restaurant in Philly and um you wrote a piece about it for working in these times and the one thing that i did not hear about when i talked to them before that episode that you wrote about very well was this like the wage theft in this restaurant was happening because the employers the employees had to take a test on the menu can you explain this yeah. craziness
2: i mean so any one who's ever worked in a restaurant um for the most part has had to take a menu test of some kind you know it's because you can't just go up to the table and the you know, server is you know, asking about a dish and you're just you know, drawing completely blank. Um, but in this particular restaurant, they didn't just have a menu test. They had four menu tests, and the amount of your tips that you were allowed to keep, um, which you know, clearly is problematic, to say the least. And
1: blatantly illegal. Eh, right. That's, that's kind of what I meant by problematic. <laughs> problematic um,
2: So, there's a beverage test. If you pass a beverage test, you get to keep 70% of your tips. Then there's a short menu test, which um, allows you to keep 80. A slightly longer one that allows you to keep 90. And then there was a super long, complex one that will allow you to keep 100%. Um, now... This menu is apparently extremely complex. And As a former
1: sushi waitress, I can testify to that.
2: <laughs> and um, on top of that, one of the workers I spoke with, you, you couldn't just take the test whenever you wanted. So she took the test, uh, the, the final, you know, get to keep all your tips test. Um, and, and, she, and she, you know, um, and so she, she takes it, she fails. Um, and then she steadies really hard, and comes in a couple days later, and goes up to the boss and is like, "Hey, um, I would like to take that test again." And he's like, "Sorry, got to wait till next month." So there, was, you could only take it once a month. Was the other thing. Now, the positive news that I've heard is that since the workers have been speaking out about this and on on strike, um, the employer has apparently stopped doing that. <laughs> Um, uh, which is good. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah, that was an incredibly screwed up regime that that salmon for a while there.
1: Yeah, I that it reminds me weirdly of standardized testing, right? That like suddenly we're introducing standardized testing in high stakes testing into the restaurant. Um, so
2: yeah, I
0: our final question is how is the new Star Trek movie
2: (laughs) I gave it a B minus in that I always like watching movies with big space battles that have like a medium amount of like pretty witty banter but on the whole it's they put all that cool action sequences in the trailer so I already saw them all I hate when that happens and it happens all the time they've got to stop doing that And uh, then also, Benedict Cumberbatch is in it, who I love because he's in Sherlock, which is the best, but um, he's just completely wasted and basically just scowls his way through the entire movie and is not given anything particularly fun or interesting to do other than be the bad guy. So, if you don't have anything else going on, you should maybe see it. Or if you get to go for free like I did, you should, but otherwise... (laughs)
1: But Labored Podcast, now with movie reviews.
2: <laughs> Look for Jake's review at City Paper.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How much do we love Jake Blumgart, Sarah?
1: We love Jake a lot, Josh.
0: Those of us who love Jake so much <laughs> that we need a daily fix of Jake Blumgart can go to www.jakeblumgart.com. Also, please check out his book review and the current issue of Dissent on the Republican Party and Labor. You can imagine that sparks fly. <laughs> As we close, we turn each week to our segment, Arg! I wish I had written that.
1: Everybody's favorite segment. Sarah,
0: what is... Filling your veins with such rage that blood and oxygen cannot even fit within them anymore this week.
1: So this week, um, and it has been before as well, um, uh, the piece is by a writer who I have fangirled so hard that I have made my friend um, invite us both out to have whiskey together so I can tell her firsthand that I love her. Organizing. Um, Exactly. So her name is Sarah Nicole Prickett, and the piece is at a a website magazine called Bullet, Um, and the piece is called Who Are the People That Get to Make This Thing We Call Art? Um, and it's a piece about the Freeze Art Fair, um, the labor struggles around the Freeze Art Fair, um, about making art and who makes art, about class, about who art is made for, um, about Scabby the Rat and the Cooper Union struggle right now among students there to keep Cooper Union free. Um... I am not an art person, really. I don't. I have never taken a single art history class. I do not know who most of the people that she mentions in this piece are, um, other than my friend Molly Crabapple, who is the one that I have forced to introduce the two of us. Um, but Molly talks a lot about who gets to make the art, who actually makes the art, that a lot of these big-name, famous artists um, actually pay assistance to make the sculptures to make the projects that they then sell for thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars um, to rich collectors. And the real question of who, of what is art, um, of who art is made for, of who gets to be an artist, and what those barriers are to becoming an artist, as opposed to just being a worker. Um, Why is a giant inflatable red dog inside the free art, freeze art fair, art and the inflatable scabby the rat outside the freeze art fair um, because it's using non-union labor. Why is that not art? Um, it's a wonderful piece. Everybody should read it. We will link it at dissentmagazine.org.
0: That we will. This week I'm overcome with rage and envy at the greatness of a piece by Gordon Lafer of the Economic Policy Institute and the University of Oregon. The piece is for Labor Notes, a frequent producer of Tremendous content that makes us jealous on the belabored
1: podcast indeed
0: it is called discipline and punish the new unemployment reform it takes us through a series of proposals at the state level to make people on unemployment more heavily regulated and more miserable through making it harder and harder to get the meager benefits that unemployment provides and controlling, disciplining, and punishing, as Layfer channeling Foucault suggests. So these include proposals to require people on unemployment to do community service each week, proposals encouraging them to work for free for private companies as a way of supposedly gaining some kind of work experience. Layfer notes that this creates the opportunity for more unemployment as People who get paid for their jobs are displaced by, effectively, interns who are unemployed. He notes Ben Stein giving away the game and saying what's great about getting unemployed people to go get into any kind of job under any conditions is they can learn the importance of, quote, not talking back. Leifer also notes proposals that involve the longer you've been on unemployment, the cheaper a job you should be willing to accept. The cheaper a job that if it's available is a reason for you to no longer qualify for unemployment and he traces this back to the logic of welfare reform where we saw quite striking invective towards the supposedly undeserving poor people who supposedly lacked a work ethic and his argument is that whereas a couple decades ago people on unemployment might have been put in the category of virtuous poor people who wanted to work and just were temporarily out of work now people are on who are unemployed have been cast in much of the public debate into that same category or are in the process of being cast into that same category with those hated people who get welfare as people who are undeserving poor who need as he suggests to be disciplined and punished by the right
1: I will also vouch for that piece. It is wonderful. Um, This brings us to, sadly, the end of this week's Belabored podcast. Um, Once again, we hope that you will tweet at us, um, give us your comments, your suggestions, your story ideas um, at hashtag Belabored. Um, You can leave us comments on, well, I guess you can tweet at us comments, right? Please do. With the
0: Belabored hashtag and at Mag. The wonderful home of our podcast, Descent Magazine.
1: Thank you once again to our producer, Natasha Lewis, and to executive producer, Sarah Leonard, without whom no good things would happen.
0: We'll see you next week. This life is hard, so hard, I must go. 825, hell we can't go.